A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're back. We're back. You can still say that in the month of January, can't you? Yeah. That gives me. 11 days to edit this <laughs> <laughs> until that will sound ridiculous. So, um, you since just... you've been gone, yeah, um, doing whatever you do when you don't see me. Well, I was, well, I was writing an essay. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I've been catching up on some classics of cinema, filling in the gaps. I've watched the following classics, Made in Manhattan, Step Up, yeah. and 13 Going on 30. I can give you my hot take on any and or all of these. Well... Why don't you just like? What's your feeling about? What do you have the strongest feeling on between those three films? Okay, have you seen Thirteen Going on Thirty? I haven't seen any of these movies. It's the most movie of any movie I've ever seen. So it starts <laughs> it's Jennifer Garner. Yeah, right? it starts in the eighties yeah. when she's thirteen, her thirteenth uh-huh. birthday. It's and, like big. Yeah, yeah. And young Mark Ruffalo, who's a cool, he's cool, but he's nerdy, but he's like into the talking heads, which makes him awesome, but they think he's like weird. Yeah makes her this dollhouse and for some reason this magics her into a 30 year old she wakes up in the year present day which is then like 2004 and so it's a weird thing where like it's the sort of uh freaky friday like i'm a grown-up it's like i'm also in the future right i see it's too much i didn't realize that she moves forward in time like yeah so she aged at normal rate but she just just, skipped yeah she just skips it and then it's like uh the movie is a sort of morality play like she, as a result of like this prologue scene, she like rejected Mark Ruffalo, a nice friend, and started hanging out with the bitchy friends. And now, yeah. as a result, she's an incredibly successful uh, journalist at a magazine, a women's magazine, obviously. Oh, this is like Every some rom-com. sort of ghost of Christmas future thing. Exactly. Right. And then she rekindles her romance with Mark Ruffalo, but she's got the mind of a 13-year-old girl, so that's <laughs> obviously a bit weird. But they avoid any kind of weird sex stuff. And then the movie's about her like... Uh, saving this magazine, the sort of Vogue substitute, some like a really imaginative photo shoot where she hires Mike Ruffalo. And then at the end, she returns back to the past and like makes the right decision, thus making everything you've just seen redundant. <laughs> redundant it didn't happen. <laughs> so it's just such so a she w- saves the day in the future, but then cancels but the- history, so that doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Right. Bizarre. It's a real uh, tightrope walk, the movie, you know? It feels like it's wrong to put a 13 year old child's brain into a fully grown woman's with body and then have like a romance plot line yeah well it wasn't a problem in big yeah but i guess this was made a bit wait when was this movie made like 2004 so this was made in 2004 so is the prologue set in like the 90s then it's the 80s in the 80s sorry yeah so so right okay but so she, she doesn't remark upon the modern day changes not or really like, you think it'd be a massive culture shock like the internet and mobile phones and stuff Nah, she sort of just fished to order you know just sort of gets on with it <laughs> okay right interesting yeah because in in big tom hanks has sex yeah with his child's brain but with a grown woman yeah i guess if the woman is a child having sex with a grown man that's even worse yeah it's bad so so perhaps that's why they were more reticent mm. um Anyway, worth a watch. It's on Amazon Prime. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, wait, wait give, give us a quick quick take on uh, Step Up and... Um, Step Up is like the sort of standard, he's a guy from the streets and then like, you know, he wants to dance and like his buddy is like, oh, you blew me off to do dancing. Right. What are we going to play? You know, it's the sort of... Um, in Magic Mike, it's kind of the full circle because his masculinity and the dancing are fully synchronized yeah that's why it's a great movie yeah whereas in step up it's seen as like a barrier it's seen like as infeminine even though he does he does like street dancing which is the least sort which, of gay kind yeah <laughs> but then like he's doing like the gay kind of dancing which is just like in a building i guess right 
Okay. It just made me think that 2000, like the noughties were a long time ago. Maybe it felt old, like all the fashion, like everyone's clothes don't fit them. What was going on in the early night, uh, noughties, you know? Shit was baggy. It was baggy. <laughs> and Maiden Manhattan is like, <laughs> the thing I found most amusing about it is that Ray Fiennes is the romantic love interest of Jennifer Lopez. He just looks like he wants to eat her the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing a Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, I think he just made like Red Dragon and he's still basically playing uh, Francis Dollarhide. <laughs> but as like a sort of American senator. Right. But Jennifer Lopez is a great actress. I think she's like very easy charisma to her. Mm. I think she should, should make more films. Also, a thing I liked about it, which is very true of rom-coms, is the way the story continues into the credits. You know, they get together, and mm. then over the credits, there's like some sort of pop banger, and there's like a series of, like magazine headlines or like oh yeah, yeah. Realms. I think most films should just have that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's silly rom-coms, but why not? Uh, you know, hard-hitting dramas and stuff. Well, Brexit: The Uncivil War, which we've just watched, yeah, ha- has that, but it's just text. Yeah, you need it's some photos and. Um, Did they run out of budget or something? Yeah, exactly. They they could have had like yeah, the family photo albums, but it's it's just all about like Russia collusion or something. <laughs> Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, so um, I'm up to date on those classics, uh, but watching them has made me forget what I'm <laughs> doing here. Well, we haven't been on uh, the internet for a while, have we? No. So, um, so it's probably worth a refresher. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, to remind you, Film Chat is a podcast all about a couple of young scamps called Kevin and Lindsay who are determined to sabotage the romantic relationships of their divorced mother, Sam Foster, usually with a series of Home Alone-style pranks and japes performed upon her unwitting suitors. And their latest target is Danny Moran, a businessman who hates kids and often yells at them. Uh, events conspire such that Danny must drive these little imps to Vancouver for New Year's Eve, placing the misbehaving children and the irritable adult who hates children in extremely close quarters. Can you guess what ensues? Oh, no. Hilarity. No. Oh, great. A number of things happen in the car. It gets uh, vomited on. No. It gets paint on the side of it. What? Uh, many injuries are sustained oh, uh, by Danny Moran in increasingly hilarious kind of slapstick pratfall fashion. And the car eventually explodes, but it doesn't matter because (laughs) (laughs) all of that drama has ultimately brought the child-hating man and the (laughs) man-hating children (laughs) together. Fantastic. And it's really a beautiful story, is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 2005 film, Are We There Yet? Starring Ice Cube. Instead, it's just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Sam. This is Danny. He's like a guy who hates kids and then he loves kids. That's me. That's what I used to be like. (laughs) So, this is the first episode of 2019, so we'll be starting, as we mean to go on, by reviewing a brilliant film that came out months ago. Hari Kazu Korodar's Palm Door winning film, Shoplifters. It's a film that's so good that if I saw it in a shop, I didn't have any money. I would go and get a job and earn some money to buy it. (laughs) Stealing is wrong, unless you're very poor, in which case, fair enough. And Sam, you'll be reviewing Beautiful Boy. About a little beautiful boy who takes drugs and stops being a beautiful boy. And his dad's like, what happened to my little beautiful boy? <laughs> my beautiful boy. I've not seen it. Plus, we give a review of the latest addition to Benedict Cumberbatch's ill-advised portrayal of controversial figures where the dust hasn't remotely settled yet. <laughs> Saga, he seems to be embarking on. The Uncivil War, a film which finally explained Brexit to me. But can somebody please tell me why isn't Labour 100% in the polls? It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. He just has to say, stop Brexit and we'd all vote for him. Well, I don't know. Plus, we look at the latest plans by Disney to remake its back catalogue in live action and the latest attempts to breathe life into the Ghostbusters franchise, all of which should give me just enough time to tell you about my recently commissioned script for an upcoming TV movie that really insightfully puts its finger on the pulse of the nation. It's called The Really Uncivil War, and it's about Owen Smith's failed leadership bid from 2016. Obviously got Benedict Cumberbatch on as Smithy lad. Yes. And Rory Kinnear as his wife, and the majority of it is about that time he live-tweeted his anniversary and talked about Spotify. And- Stakes out on Spotify is the plan. Yeah, and I'm just going to have a bunch of people sort of come <laughs> on and deliver sort of metaphors and just talk in, like, Wikipedia summations of things that happened. It's going to be fucking brilliant. That sounds great, man. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films,
that's Doc Peter Fitch. Films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. I'm happy to report that we've got correspondence. Yes. This is a great reason to not record for a little while. Just let them pile up. Let it pile up with some of our closest and dearest friends interacting with us. Georgia Mills messaged us to ask, can you explain adapted and original screenplay for BAFTA, please? Why is the favorite in original if it's based on a book? I have done a solid 30 seconds of Googling to, to, to find out the answer to this question, Georgia. And as far as I can tell, the favorite is not based on a book, but based on a screenplay written by somebody in the 90s who was like a historian called Deborah Davis um, or, or a history student, and then subsequently resurrected by Lanthimos and um, uh, adapted with another screenwriter. So I don't think it's uh, based on a book, but maybe you know something that I don't know. In any case, I have the BAFTA criteria or a PDF that purports to be that, in which it defines the difference between original and adapted screenplays as follows, where a script is based on a pre-existing narrative source, it will be considered adapted. That includes novels, plays, short stories, TV shows, video games, and so on. Uh, it also includes sequels and prequels, uh, and screenplays based on pre-existing stories or characters in the public domain, even if not based on a specific source. So if, I guess if you just make a movie like this is like about David Copperfield but shares none of the elements of that book, it's still right, okay. adapted. It's original if it's based on real-life events, unless it's based on a specific narrative source material, including autobiographies, memoirs, and diaries, in which case it would be considered adapted. So perhaps you, if you make a movie that's based on a history book, which is not following like a specific narrative set out by that book, yeah, then it would be considered an original screenplay. So there's a little factual response for you. Did you find that educational, Danny? I did. George, I, you know... I guess that was on topic, but I feel like you're kind of using us as kind of Siri, but like incredibly slow. Like you ask us a question. Then in, uh, within the next month, <laughs> you get a response. one of us will very, very ra- quickly sort of put something together on Google. But it is film related and I did learn a lot. So, okay. So you just get make, away with it this time. Make sure you just keep in the parameters of films. I don't want you asking just other questions that you want answered. Which aren't film based. If you're if you're tweeting us like where's my nearest Sainsbury's or something, like <laughs> I'm not looking that up for you. And I'm not recording an answer to that on this film podcast because it'd be irrelevant. Uh, who else got in touch? Christopher Young. Great guy. Great guy. Uh he got in touch to ask the following. If you were in some sort of film related government, what <laughs> law would you impose on films? Wow, the power. Film related government, I guess that's like if they made BAFTA the government. Yeah. Something like that. If they, if they expanded its remit to include running the country and uh, trying to get laws passed. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any restrictions that you'd like to place on? Just films? no more films about the royal family, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just enough. Fair enough. <laughs> just draw a line under it. What about, like, do you mean the current members? like, Or if new all ones of are them, born? All of them. All right. Covers uh, past, present, and future. I think, you know, if you did a sort of census poll of, like, all the British film output, which classes are represented? Yeah. There's a massive imbalance. I reckon just ban them for like 20 years. Let the other uh, sections of society get some representation cinematically and then, you know, let them come back in. I Maybe. agree. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I have one. Yeah. I would like to see a lot more verisimilitude in performances because I feel like actors are getting away with being hailed for great performances simply by departing a long distance from their already known personas. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that should be the mark of a great actor, like the distance between, because that requires like extra film knowledge, you know, should just be within the movie, in my opinion. So no makeup and prosthetics beyond very slight things, like maybe changing the color of someone's hair, but none of the kind of totally different nose or whatever, none of this shit that to transform Christian Bale into an extremely good likeness of Dick Cheney for some reason. I feel like that should be banned. And, and I also want to ban accents. If you want your character in your movie to have that accent, just hire someone who's from there. Yeah. You know, that's e- good. every movie set in the American South, none of the actors are from there. And they're all just, it's like, you know, trying out their crazy Southern accents, you know, just go there and hire people who are from there. And if you want to set your movie in South Africa, 
just hire an, an actor who's from there. Yeah. I think it will be good for diversity. I think this is great. Screen diversity. This is a great idea. And we, when we wouldn't have any more of these like acting awards where it just goes to somebody who was covered in so much fucking makeup that you can barely tell, you know, how their face was moving to act underneath it. Like yeah. the kind of fox catcher thing, I feel like, is the apotheosis of this, where they're all playing real people, but no one actually knows what they look like, but they still felt obliged to cake them in this stuff, you know? Steve Carell does not really need like loads of false teeth and stuff to be that billionaire guy like i'm sure he might have looked more like that but just make him perform make him do it yeah um and I if agree. someone's got like a you know like a disability or or a disfigurement of some kind just cast someone you know absolutely or or make them sort of do that bradley cooper thing where he did the elephant man on broadway and he just kind of scrunched his face up into an odd shape for an entire performance which is which would at least be embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> to, for, for, for i think that's great to, have to do i fully support this law Thank let's you. make it happen yeah let's make change it, it all let's let's get it let's get it together let's get it trending let's get yeah. it trending if let's... we can't get that um last jedi film remade without any women in it um <laughs> the least we can do the least we can do is uh, take over the entire country and uh, ban prosthetics and accents yeah in what... fact i think the two of us will work really well together because um because it... we're friends because <laughs> <laughs> we're friends but also because it, it means that um, without any royals and without the ability to change your accent, all those, uh, you know, sort of Cumberbatch, um, uh, yeah, that generation, yeah. Tom Hiddleston, all those guys, they're out of a job. Yeah, that birthing they're, royal they're, sack is. They're stuck <laughs> to like fantasy movies and stuff, and that's all they can. That's all they can. Yeah, do. this is good. That's good. This is positive change. That was positive. On a less positive note, you've been beefing online with uh, with our third listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> James Angie's had a bit of beef. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what happened? Well, I went to see The Favorite with my mother. Yeah. Great film. I uh, raved about it on the podcast. And I, I didn't care for Gave it. Gave it a five star review. I didn't care for it. And I, you know, I figured my time to review it had passed. So I tweeted my hot take. Which was you didn't like it. Which I didn't like it. As for like performances aside, I don't quite get the hype. James Angie was furious. He sent me a gif of Scott Ackerman from the comedy Bang Bang TV show shaking his fist. Yeah. He asked me to explain myself. I said I didn't care for it. I thought it was very sort of like Barry Lyndon karaoke. I thought it was a bit too indebted to that movie. He didn't know what that film was. I explained what the film was to him. <laughs> uh, he said if you if I'd seen fewer films, maybe I'd liked it. And I was like, no. Yeah. He nope. Said, nope. I said full stop. Nope. Full stop. Nope. Re- rebuffed him. And he was like, God, this is the first time we tweeted in ages, and I'm already furious. You you chimed in, fucking started a pile on. <laughs> you and James <laughs> piling on me. You said this a, this podcast account is run by a nasty troll. Ignore it. Yeah. I knew you were sleep deprived from your essay writing, so forgave I, I for forgave that. you for that. <laughs> and I said I thought it was a movie that consisted of one joke that it kind of grounded into the ground, grounded into the ground, if you will, uh, like in the first hour, and then it's like another hour. And I didn't hate it. I just thought it felt like a really good film trapped in a very average one. James Julian Andrews said, "Wait, what's the joke?" This is really interesting, right? Just to read it back and forth. Yeah. And I said, I found the, juxtapos- uh, the juxtaposition of the character station with the way they act. So the queen acts like a kid and all the toffs say cunt a lot. And James Jr. Andrew said, she's obviously extremely mentally ill, disappointed that you found it funny, TBH. Which I didn't. First of all, James, check your tone when you talk to me. Very condescending. I never said I found it funny. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> Irked me, to be honest with you. Yeah, did it. Found it, found it a little patronizing. Well, you could say that your tone... You know, to him earlier in the conversation was somewhat terse. When? The, the nope full stop, would you say? A little... Yeah, but I find this thing like, if you'd seen less movies, you'd enjoy something. What, if I had less taste? What are you talking about? If I was less experienced, I was less in the world? Well, this is why the internet's a bad place to have these conversations. You know, everyone, yeah. just, everyone just gets mad at each other. I'm sure like a fucking baby loved, you know, space chimps too. But I'm a grown-ass man. <laughs> I've, I've seen loads I've of seen, films. I've seen loads of films. <laughs> to compare it to. And he said, this exchange is better make the show. And it did. You and happy, it did. James? Happy. Didn't care for the favourite. Yeah. Just one man's opinion. And on the point of like the mental illness thing, I thought something the movie... Something I did like about the movie is the way it became a bit more serious as it went on. But I found just... It didn't have a lot to say. And it took a long time to say. And I don't think it quite did it as well as a movie like frank yeah which is kind of about someone who's mentally ill and it kind of has its cake and eats it in that it's funny 
and then you realize he's a real person. And I think what's better about the movie is like you're from the perspective of an outsider entering the world of Frank. So initially it's like just eccentric behavior and it's not. Whereas it's kind of clear that she's mentally ill from the start. And as such, I don't think the joke quite wasn't that funny to begin with. Yeah. And it just, I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Just didn't, didn't care for it. Didn't care for it. And didn't like the music. All right. Why don't we move past the bitterness of the divide between you and I and the favorite between you and James online yeah. in your uh, <laughs> uh, irate uh, back and forth, clear yeah. the air with the news jingle. Okay, that'd be good. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. Disney. Big company. Huge. A lot of projects. Always doing stuff. And uh, they've got a few things on the go. Star Wars, Marvel. The other main thing they're doing is raiding their own back catalogue of cartoons and turning them into very realistic looking cartoons, sometimes with humans in them. We've had Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. We've had The Jungle Book. The Jungle Book. We're getting The Lion King and Aladdin and Dumbo. Yes, exactly. In quick succession. So we've, yeah, Aladdin, Lion King, and Dumbo have all been trailered. But Disney's sort of catalogue of classics is relatively limited. I mean, there's not like hundreds of them. There's just like tens of them. <laughs> so uh, having kind of gone through some of the most famous options, they are now moving back onto things that people are very familiar with, but perhaps don't capture quite the same uh, place in people's hearts. And they have announced a live action adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I guess it will be an adaptation of their adaptation of the... It's a Victor Hugo novel, is it? Yeah. And they have hired a playwright called David Henry Huang, who wrote something called M. Butterfly. I guess that's Madame Butterfly. And it's going to be... He's going to write a new script based on the cartoon and the Victor Hugo novel. It's going to be a movie musical. Alan Menken will be returning to write the music. Again, he's just going to, I guess, trace over the music that he wrote for the first (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, Hunchback of Notre Dame film, uh, teaming up with uh, Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the music for Wicked. And apparently these, this pair also worked on a stage musical version of the same story for Disney in Europe, but it won't be directly based on that. It's got a pretty big name to produce. Do you want to hear who's going to produce this? Uh, the Steven kind of, Soderbergh, the guy, Frank Marshall, yeah, Spielberg. A, ma- a man of that kind of caliber. When you oh, get him on board to be? produce your movie, you know this is money in the bank. Josh Gad, the snowman from Frozen. Oh, right. <laughs> he's on board to produce. He was the foo, right, in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, so really, he's, he's, he's already not... played a sort of little toad-like man. <laughs> you know, now he could play a hunchback. I don't know. Is he just angling for a part? Is that the best way to secure the lead roles is to produce the entire be thing? On both, play both sides. You know, yeah. be on, like, interview yourself for the role. I really think Josh Gad would be great for this part. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it says, according to Deadline, that um, he could end up in the lead. Okay. So I actually haven't seen, I haven't seen any films. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> One of the ma- many, many films I haven't seen is... The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'm familiar there's a talking gargoyle in it. I think we talked about this, or I have briefly, in movies that freaked us out as kids. Right, yeah. And this is one of them. It's quite, it's a very scary film. I think what I found a bit unnerving about it, having grown up on like other Disney movies, it's like, he's the outcast, he's the ugly duckling, right? He's the beast, but no magic potion is going to change his appearance or, you know, he's, yeah. he's just born you know this that, way. You know that the beast is actually like a hottie. Yeah. Hottie. yeah, and it's like at the end, all the right wrongs are righted and everything. But you know, uh, the Hunchback Notre Dame sort of depicts reality in a way which is fucking grim. Yeah, and I remember just like the villain is the sort of uh, the guy, the who would run a cathedral, the bishop, the archbishop, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the bishop, pope, probably? the pope. Yeah. yeah, he's like a sort of evil guy who's in love with Esmeralda, the gypsy. And it's got a lot of, like, stuff about him lusting after her and, like, it's all a bit fire and brimstone, you know? Yeah. And I remember there were some songs, but I don't think anyone remembers them, right? It's not like Under the Sea or Be Our Guest. It's not yeah. like a classic score. So it's kind of interesting. And I also think just all the kind of grim elements would just be more grim in, if it's live action. It's going to be like that uh, Les Mis film. Yeah. It's just just... Re- relentlessly <laughs> gritty and horrible. Relentless. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Though... They have got the best actor in the world, Josh Gad. So they got they got Gad on board. They got Gad on board, so, so yeah. it's going to be fine. Yeah. Well, when Gad's Gad's on side, yeah, you can't go far wrong. When the Gadster turns up, yeah. 
That guy is just a box office goals. He's a raw mint. He Frozen. Frozen was like the most successful movie, like three years in a row or something. I right? think it's widely acknowledged that it's because Gad. Beauty and the Beast. Because Gad was in like, it. <laughs> and uh, Pixels, three most successful films of the last ten years. <laughs> And Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. Pixel's the only film to be number one for tw- uh, 24 months. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> At the box office. That's the power of Gad. Yeah. Speaking of perplexing reboots, different versions. This is every fucking new story we do is all this. This is all movies are now. Ghostbusters. Yeah. You know, everyone loves the Ghostbusters. They tried to do something different with women. The film itself was like pretty good, um, but it didn't make enough money. So they've like yeah. abandoned that. Some, somewhat that forgettable. Reboot. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, okay, so they didn't like the women. What do we do? We're going to make it like the old Ghostbusters. And how do we get the magic back? We get the original director, Ivan Reitman. He's like, I'm busy. I don't want to do it. What's the next best thing? His son, Jason Reitman. <laughs> Usually makes films about people in rooms talking. Yeah. He can probably add ghosts to that. And he was in Ghostbusters 2 as an actor. So he's got first on, you know, he was there. As a child. As a child. And he absorbed all the magic that went into that movie. Yeah. And he can recreate it. There was a teaser trailer already released for a film that's not been shot. Of just like a creepy barn, and they go into the barn, and it's just—it's the—it's the machine. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the car. It's, it's the machine with wheels that they that, that transports the places. Yeah, the Ecto, Ecto Ectomobile. Yeah, exactly. Ecto One or something. Whatever. And the latest news report is that it might focus on some kids, some like kids Ghostbusters. So, I think what's why I think what's <laughs> going on here is, uh, you know, you've got to use all the brands that you have to hand at all yeah. times. Yeah. So Ghostbusters cannot be allowed to die. Has to be brought back in some form or another. They yeah. check the the merchandise on like the Ghostbusters toys, and they're still selling somewhere. So there will be more Ghostbusters, and the female fronted Ghostbusters was obviously an attempt to revive it by combining it with something that was big at the time, which was like female fronted comedies where like women are sort of pratfalling in ways that were previously. Uh, the domain of the domain only of, men. The domain of men, exactly. So it had the bridesmaids director and some of the cast of bridesmaids and so on. But combined with the fun of Ghostbusters, that didn't really work. So now they want to combine it with another thing, which is big, which is 80s nostalgia focusing around kids riding bikes and stuff. Yeah. So I think this is going to be the sort of strangest things ified Ghostbusters. I'm pretty sure there's an episode in season two where they dress as the Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Yeah, someone probably watched that and they were like... Wait a second. Wait a second. Let's instead of let me just check the receipts for it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Make it happen. <laughs> Make it happen exactly. And it's probably going to be that kid who's in both of those projects. You know, it's Finn Wolf, Wolf Finn Wolfhard, the Wolf Boy, <laughs> the little Wolf Boy, <laughs> little the little Wolf Boy is going to be in it. And uh, I was reading the Birth Movies Death article about this, and they were saying that they like they released some. There were some kind of rumors about what the characters were going to be like, and it's basically like one of them is the Egon character and like sure. one of them is like, you know, the sort of socially awkward uh, science loving one. And then the one who's just loves ghosts and is really excited about the supernatural. And that's obviously Ray. Um, but it exists in the world of the original movies. Well, the, yeah. The, the, the other rumor of... is that yeah, the original cast are going to come back with it, but they were in the female Ghostbusters as well, just as different characters. Yeah. There was just like cameos for Annie Hudson and Sigourney Weaver and Dan Aykroyd and how Ramis's likeness as a, as a, as a bust. Yeah. Yeah, so so it could be like that. But I guess the fact that the the original vehicle is in the barn suggests it will be in the same world, doesn't it? Yeah. And they'll just be the same guys, but the you know the new Ghostbusters will be their kids or they'll be like um I don't know, kids who have stumbled, they go on an adventure and they stumble into the barn and find the machine and then, you know, yeah. then they become they, open they up take a... them, like, take on the mantle or something, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like the wrong approach. That's my hot take. What's the I've... correct approach? I don't know. I mean, what can we say about the endless nostalgia thing, which we haven't... I'm getting nostalgic for a time when this was... We weren't talking, <laughs> we <were> talking about <laughs> it. I have, I have one thing to, you know, add, yeah. maybe. It's, it's a bit, it is repetitive of things we said before, but it won't, it won't stop me. Um, which is that, like, I think one of the things that, that you, you mentioned before is the way in which, like, 80s movies, like, focusing on kids, like E.T. or Stand By Me and stuff, are kind yeah. of nostalgic for, like, the 50s, right? Or there's, like, a... Yeah, so director's like youth. Director's youth. Like, films about, like, coming of age and uh, kids sort of hanging out 
and going on adventures are kind of inherently like tinged with nostalgia because they make adults think of their own childhoods yeah, yeah. but the original ghostbusters movie doesn't have that element to it whatsoever it's not a, a, a backwards looking film at all it's like this oddity that comes out of uh, dan Aykroyd's like love for ufos and you know ghosts and shit yeah because yeah. he's like a, a, a weird guy so um updating a story that doesn't have that element and adding it to it just does seem like an inherently odd thing to do because the appeal of ghostbusters is the fact that it's funny but also they're kind of really into it you know like these guys are like really fucking into that yeah, shit. yeah. um which i think yeah it's something that um we said before about the other like the the rebooted ghostbusters that it didn't have like that sort of like weirdness or like the nerdiness <laughs> yeah yeah it didn't have that genuine like these people probably are geeks who you know like <laughs> don't have that many friends um and uh and i think that the the reboot runs the same kind of risk of being like yeah just sort of some nostalgic movie about kids rather than a film with like some actually like you know if it's got something as weird as like the river of pink slime then i'll be on board with it it's basically what i'm saying yeah also ghostbusters is a movie which like kids love but it's for adults and that's why you like it you know what i mean it's yeah. like it's pitched the jokes are adult you know they smoke and like talk about sex and perv and sigourney weaver and stuff like it's not like a kids oriented movie. It just so it just has ghosts in it. Yeah. It's got a kids title. Yes. You know yes, what I mean? Exactly, but it's not yeah. like it'd be like making a you know, it's like you watch Die Hard when you're a kid. It's yeah. not like I wish you know John McClane was like my age. Like, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, yeah, it's I guess the, the the sort of nostalgia reboot is still appealing to the like kid in you, but it's I don't know. It's too appealing literal. to the kid you, it's appealing to like the nostalgic adults who it's you are. It's the fan fiction you wrote as a kid when you watched Ghostbusters. It's now <laughs> yeah, the film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah, probably gonna Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, rubbish. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey, Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are going to help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Beautiful boy. Hello. It's you, it's me, and it's a film. (laughs) It's based on two memoirs. That's how you know it's good. Yeah. Some films are only based on one. Some films are based on three. That's too many. Two memoirs. That's the Goldilocks number of memoirs to base your film upon. Uh, father and son they each wrote one um on the same topic uh david chef who's played by steve carell in the movie wrote the memoir beautiful boy a father's journey through his son's addiction and his son nick who's played by timothy chalamet wrote tweak growing up on methamphetamines and it is about a new york times writer david whose son develops seemingly out of nowhere a, a drug addiction oh no he takes loads and loads of drugs not drugs and it's bad it's bad for him yeah of course and his family uh, worries no. a great deal <laughs> about it including uh, his wife vicky played by amy ryan and he relapses lapses delapses goes clean gets dirty goes through this cycle of, sure. of affairs and it's very difficult for the entire family here is a clip of uh, son and father hanging out um, and uh, chatting at a cafe during one of the sort of down uh, relapse periods oh no yeah, I've seen a few extra bucks. Why don't we just have lunch and talk? We can do that, right? Mm. Mm. How, well, how's Karen and, uh, and the kids? Okay. They ask about you. Is there a step up next week? And I know they'd love you. Okay, you're, uh, you're guilt tripping me, all right? No, I'm just I saying. I feel horrible they... about myself. I know they wanted you to be there, that's all. I'm sorry, Dad. Um, I just need some fucking money, all right? So please just give me and some fucking what? money. Where does this end? This is, I gotta see this one through. This is kind of working out for me right now. I got five days sober. It doesn't look like it's working you, out, Nick. Oh, it doesn't look like it's working out? So what, no. the therapy, huh? You can come home. No, that well, wouldn't... Make it work, please, Nick. Please. 
Um, this film is bad. I think it's gotten quite bad reviews, quite rightly. I think one of the problems is indicated by the title of the film, which it suggests something sort of like mawkish and with little sort of self-awareness, which mm-hmm. is describes the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I mean, the thing that it, the thing that it most reminded me of was something like like Guardian, like lifestyle columns. I mean, I remember I used to read this uh, sort of hate read this uh, column in the guardian called living with teenagers which was written anonymously by a woman who's got like teenagers because she was writing anonymously she was sort of exposing all of the like you know sure. dirty underbelly of having to deal with her her difficult children stuff and the whole like uh, the message every single time was like oh my beautiful son ian who's i used to just clean his little bottom while he told me that he loved me and now he just says he just calls me a cunt and steals my towels, you know. Like that's this that's you know, like teenagers are horrible. They're just mean to you, and I don't understand. And where'd my lovely, sweet golden boy go? And what, sure. what, why is he replaced by this like hairy guy whose room stinks of calm? And he just like, <laughs> tells me to fuck off every five seconds. Wait a second, this is my, maybe my mom wrote this column. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that describes me perfectly and I, you know when i read that i was always like this is obnoxiously self-pitying i was a teenager at the time i was reading this and i was like i'm very nice to my lovely mother thank you okay it's not some kind of hormone induced thing where you just mean to people some people just twats you know some people just twats <laughs> so obviously the subject matter of that column was not as dramatic as um your son being addicted to meth but the the kind of attitude of it i think is quite similar what uh, happened? What happened to what, my little beautiful boy? Yeah. I mean, rather than having like an angle on drug addiction or like why it happens or what the nature of it is, it's just a very sentimental examination of how hard it is on a family when you have someone who is addicted to drugs. But in by taking that approach, you, you don't really learn anything that there's nothing that will surprise you in this film. You know, one of the things that it tells you is that when you are on drugs it's hard to get get off them because addictions that's the nature of it of course yeah so you might go clean for a while but then you might relapse sure that happens like numerous times gotcha. the other thing it teaches you that if, if your son is constantly taking drugs stealing from you to fund his drug habit going missing on days at time that makes you sad yeah you don't know what to do <laughs> <laughs> sure it just it puts you at the end of your tether yeah and it's stressful for steve Carell. i imagine it must have been stressful for him to play this role because in every scene he just sort of looks really fucking put upon and like weary you would be you would be worn out by it the other problem that comes from basing it on these memoirs is that it focuses in like mostly on how it affects the dad but i don't really understand why it's just as much the mum's problem well he's got like um i saw this movie a while ago so i'm just recording the details now but he's um chalamet is the son of his previous wife so he's like remarried and he has a new family so he has like the biological mum and his new partner who were both kind of involved in this in this drama and they do do things they're not totally passive but the obviously the main focus is on steve carell but it's just not clear from the context of the film why that is you know i don't know why he has to be the one it's just an odd thing it's yeah like, of course it's like the special bond between father and son which is in uh, some way more important i than... used to be a beautiful boy now i'm a beautiful man yeah or my own beautiful boy um the other sort of touchstone that it reminded me of is something like e McEwen's saturday or e McEwen's milieu in general where it's all set in this world of um highly privileged upper middle class people though in this case they're american rather than only got one problem the drug addiction yes exactly they only have that one problem and there's this odd thing about the depiction of that kind of world where it's simultaneously held up to be like totally natural and relatable and not really commented upon like they live in this like beautiful you know oak paneled house where everything is lovely at all times you, you're just kind of supposed to accept that as like the baseline it's just they're just these normal guys you know going through a tough time rather than them being like in the top you know 0.01 percent of wealth and you know population um but it's also kind of like obviously they're supposed to be great you know it's like this is actually the perfect way to live sure I mean, it is really like the one like wrinkle in their otherwise ideal lifestyles like <laughs> it's just perfect they've got the dog they've got the beautiful kids sure. they've got the cars you know um he's got his he works for the new york times that's a pretty cool job the son is like a he's like obviously very gifted it's like extra tragic because the son is like handsome and gifted of course so it's interrupting his like poetry and his like you know whatever else he's doing he's a writer as well he wants to be a writer well, we know if, he is a writer because he wrote this memoir if he's any kind of writer the drugs would fuel his creativity hasn't he read any good books by uh, people exactly. on drugs yeah but like 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's a bit like the sensation you would get if um you know it's like being shown someone's holiday photos or something or or if someone like if if you met someone who had a teenage kid and then like they were like oh my my son is an incredible poet he's such a gifted poet you've got you've got to read his poetry it's brilliant you'd be a bit like well you you know you probably are more inclined to have a favorable view of it because you're his parents yeah but the movie doesn't it just is like just how you know holds this out to you being like this is such a gifted sensitive beautiful genius child beautiful and boy it's so sad that he's dealing with drugs because otherwise he'd be you know the poet laureate or whatever the u.s equivalent of that is so i just found it annoying the whole the whole thing annoying. rubbed me up the wrong way I'm sure the actual reality of this was very tragic and difficult for the chef family, but the the movie just presumes your investment with those characters just based on the fact that they're like cool guys with cool jobs and they're smart and sensitive and doesn't that make it especially bad that he's suffering from drugs? Yeah. Um, whereas as a social problem, drugs really is much more of an issue for like the lower social strata of society where it can actually ruin your life and you won't yeah. get to write a memoir the, the, you know two memoirs that both get published and made into a movie with steve carell on them and the movie presents drugs as just really this kind of it's like an illness that will just strike you like a lightning bolt out of nowhere like getting the flu or something like that where it can affect anybody and it's just like a personal psychological thing to have to deal with rather than like a serious social problem that in general is like related to you know poverty and uh and lack of opportunity and whatever else things like that so yeah i mean not not that i would expect it to be some kind of like perfect loach-esque social critique but it just feels odd for it and just it's pretend a little bit limited and it's very limited exactly yeah so, okay i don't recommend it well this beautiful boy won't be going to the cinema and this beautiful boy won't be going in for a rewatch <laughs> <laughs> i do like this i saw having a lot of fun with it beautiful boy Sounds like a, quite a, something like a pervy schoolmaster would say in like a Derek and Clive sketch. <coughs> Beautiful boy. Beautiful boy. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Shoplifters. This was one of the most acclaimed films of last year. I looked at all these, you know, best of the year list, and everyone's like, you got to see Shoplifters. And I'm like, I'm such an ignoramus. I haven't seen Shoplifters. But luckily, there was a screening put on at the Genesis Cinema, and there are still a few screenings dotted around in London where films are shown. If you you don't live in London, I don't know what to do. You know, just it'll be out soon on DVD and on demand, I imagine. But it is directed by Hirokazu Korida, who previously made after the storm which i reviewed on this show about 50 episodes back <laughs> just trail through the back catalog and also directed and wrote little sister which you reviewed our, our little sister our little sister sorry also and, available in film chat archives <laughs> and he previously had a big hit with i wish and he is basically making a name for himself as one of the great humanist directors of our times makes films about families and relationships which are very well observed and very deeply affecting and this is no different in the case of Shoplifters, the plot is about a sort of family that lives in poverty. There's Usamu, who's a day laborer, and his wife, uh, Nabuyo, who works for an industrial laundry service. They also live with Aki, who works at a hostess club. And they've got a, a sort of son, surrogate son, called Shota. And they all live with an elderly woman called Hatsu, who owns the place they live and supports the group on her deceased husband's pension. And it's not really clear what the relationships are to each other. They sort of form a mum, dad, grandson, but it's like not really clear where this ragtag group has formed. And into this unit comes a young girl they called Lynn, who's this little girl they find crying and decide to take back to their place to give her some food. But when they discover she has signs of physical abuse, they think, well, I'm not going to send her back to you where she got those and this sort of adopter. And what follows is a very beautifully observed kind of character piece uh that's underselling it i feel it's great i loved it <laughs> yeah it really good. did a number on me it's very much him having seen two of his movies i kind of sort of see his thing now which is just very kind of gentle character things but with shoplifters it's kind of 
there's a bit more of plot. There's a bit of mystery because you're not sure how and when this family unit's formed. And them adopting Lynn sort of is the smallest ticking time bomb narrative device seen in a film. You know, it could it's kind of the opening of a could be a schlocky thriller. Yeah. But it's kind of put into a sort of family drama. And the way it kind of explored all the characters and scenes on paper which should be like the most trite things in the world. There's a bit where they go to the beach, which sounds like the most like touristy postcards idea for a scene. I found myself very moved by. You know, like I'm not yeah. sure what it's doing anything particularly like new or innovative. Well there's like there's a lot it... of there's a lot of movies that are about like uh, the nature of family and you know you can't choose your family or finding families you know that are formed in other ways you know the whole fast and furious franchise is about this for example <laughs> um and i thought this film is a very clever twist on it in that um it sets up this situation where the relationships between the characters are slightly ambiguous and they say things that make you wonder exactly what their history is and how they know each other and the kind of um, family dynamics that it, it explores are therefore like tinged with an extra bit of intrigue because, yeah. um, you know, all their, all their like little conflicts and arguments are not based on this foundation of like, oh, they're a married couple. They've been together for a long time and they're bickering or like, or, or if they get along really well, you know, it's like, oh, that's the sort of kindly grandma and her granddaughter. And that's why they have that relationship. It's like, you don't know quite who these people are. So, it makes you a bit more analytical about, you know, you're sort of forced to pay attention. So, you know, I've, I've only seen one of his other movies as well, Our Little Sister, but it has many similar things where, like, they just hang hang out and eat, you know. A lot of <laughs> eating. a lot the... of eating. Um, or they just, like, go to the shops and they just sort of spend time together and there's no great drama that unfolds. But because you're you're set up in this slightly uh, unmoored situation where you're you're wondering exactly what's going on, it just makes it all a bit more interesting and a bit more tense. Yeah, it's a sort of slowly building tension. So the, the tension that comes from that lack of knowledge, and also that comes from the fact that they have basically sort of kidnapped this kid, and it's one of the things that is immediately striking about it is when they bring her into the family, it happens. Um, they're just weirdly kind of chill about it yeah she just kind of comes in and then they're like oh we can't really send her back because you know she's been beaten and she's been mistreated so we'll just keep her and they just seem weirdly like they just get along with their lives you know they don't they don't dwell upon it too much really and so you're sort of thinking like are these just people who are incredibly relaxed or (laughs) what the fuck is going on and i mean our little sister was also a a film about like a family kind of forming in that there was this younger girl who moves in with these two older women and they, you know, form this like sisterly bond and stuff like that. But that was just an exploration of the sort of psychology of, of that situation. Whereas as you say, in this film, there's this like layer of kind of crime thriller or some kind of serious, you know, drama that's like been, been sort of inserted into it. Sort of the edge of scenes is like what's going on. And the thing that's so satisfying about that is how well those two things complement each other. And the exploration of family dynamics makes the plot drama more exciting and all that kind of uh, plot stuff just invests the family psychology with extra angles to examine it from. So, yeah, I think it just works really well as a unit and it, and it gives it a, a, a climax you know, in a way that... Yeah, but it's not like, you know, enough of that family stuff. Now the film must conclude. So no, 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 exactly. It's quite elegantly done. I also like something I really liked about the movie is the way they're kind of like slightly messy, chilled family unit is uh constantly kind of juxtaposed of like their working lives and just society is like very rigid yeah yeah and very formal it reminded me i think we've said this a lot about films recently like leave no trace and lean on pete yeah maybe it's just like the state of like late capitalism world where it's like everyone's like a bit worn down yeah, yeah. uh there's a lot of like you know the main guy looks like he's lived like six lives you know? <laughs> yeah it's just a bit like the attrition of life and the fact that they're still so open-hearted is just very moving yeah i think the yeah the most obvious reading of the movie is how society acts as a kind of disciplinary mechanism to prevent you from conducting your own affairs in a way that lies outside the rules you know they're obviously happy broadly speaking a happy family they seem relatively stable but eventually the rules will you know intervene and interrupt that like degree of harmony that you have yeah i mean it's not it's not obviously as straightforward as that because that that lets 
all of the characters' own decisions off the hook entirely, which the movie doesn't do at all. But I think at least part of it is about that, the way that, like, you know, to an extent, yeah, you can pick your own family and choose how you want to set things up, but actually you can't really. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, the system. The, yeah, the system will uh, will assert some, like, power over you uh, in the end. So, yeah, it was, it's it's really good. It's great. It will make, make you hungry. So. It'll make you hungry. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll go and eat. Your stomach will grow. Um, yeah. <laughs> you want to get some noodles and those delicious deep fried things they're eating. I don't know what it was, but I wanted one. Yeah. Tempura. Something like so, yeah, I'd say seek it out. Had I seen it last year, it would have made my top 10. So Watch it. Watch it. Beg, buy, or steal to see shoplifters. Very good. Unite and <laughs> take over your local cinema and demand they show shoplifters. When Zach Raff heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to do what the government can't do. We're just going to do Brexit. Yes. By which I mean we're going to review called that. Brexit, the uncivil war. I mean, what is more of a seismic shift in our world? The actual Brexit vote or this film about it? <laughs> Which came out last Monday, a couple of Monday days ago. Yeah. And it's like a sort of fictionalized account of both campaign teams, mainly focusing around the genius Svengali, Doctor Strange, Sherlock, Cheering, Hawking himself, Dominic Cumming, played by Doctor Strange, Hawking, Cheering, um, <laughs> uh, Julian Assange. Julian Assange, man, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. And uh, well, it says at the start, it's a, it's a, you know, some things have been fictionalized. A few yeah. things have been fictionalized. There's a very, there is quite a funny um, sort of title that opens the film where it's like, uh, this film is based on real events. It's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, some aspects of the dialogue have been dramatized. Whatever. It's like, really? Have they? It's not, just, <laughs> it's not just like an actual exact recreation of what happened. Sometimes we put music in to make the scenes lift a bit. <laughs> We cut from different locations. It didn't actually happen like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's written by James Graham, who is a, uh, many a playwright, I think, and he's like done a bunch of like historical plays and stuff. And I, I think part of his um, uh, history, I mean, he's a bit like, who, there's another guy. Who's a guy who wrote like The Queen? And oh, all Peter that. Morgan. Peter Morgan. He's, Poor man's it, Peter Morgan. Yeah, I think there's a similar kind of thing of uh, taking a bunch of uh, materials from history books and interviews and turning them into quite straightforward dramas that don't uh you know require too much of you basically boiling every historical person down to a series of three or four characteristics which it then hammers on over and over um yeah yeah. bad i would say it was it was really bad i mean it it was like it was basically bad in the way i expected The, the, the central i mean it is it is interesting in a way in that the film is about um, the failure of a, uh, of a of a group of people to understand what is really going on, like in the Remain campaign and also most of the Leave campaign, with only this guy Dominic Cummings who like really gets it, but then maybe he even he doesn't seem to fully get it by the end. So it's kind of about the failures of a bunch of people to understand what's really going on in the country. But the way that the film has been made um, is very much from the perspective of that world in a way that seems strangely unself-aware and there's something like just really odd about turning this like seismic upheaval event which happened like fucking yesterday like it's so early to be making this movie yeah yeah and presenting it to you as the kind of truth behind the headlines what really happened as though what seemed like such a shocking unexplicable event at the time we now know what really happened and this television drama will explain it to you but it just feels like the makers of it are committing the errors of the self-satisfied uh, <laughs> elites in in the film itself because it's like how is it possible that something which this entire group of people didn't understand two years ago you've now deciphered and you've turned it into this like relatively straightforward plotting drama it should have basically like it needs it needs a sense of like ambiguity and confusion in the thing like it can't just be like 
you know the summary of like oh here, here's how it went down and that's the explanation yeah i think that's that's it it's also just like it's kind of to remove the politics aside about this movie about brexit yeah it's a stupid thing to say but like it falls into the pitfalls of like every crappy biopic in that people just speak just everyone says their opinion the whole time and everyone's like a cipher for somebody else and it also employs some like incredibly clumsy metaphors like rory Kinnear's like having a press conference with the pm and some people and they're squabbling at the same time he's kind of feed like three children and the kids are arguing and it's like oh my god yeah. <laughs> what is he saying and despite Dominic coming becomes just sort of like uh constantly B drawing dominic becomes deep becomes played by becomes <laughs> despite him like constantly saying shit and like drawing diagrams he draws he just, so many fucking diagrams he doesn't say anything to make you think that he's nothing more than just like some guy with a laptop like we got to find out what people mean. We got to find their aspirations, their dreams. We got to hack the system. We got to think outside the box. They got this data. We need this data. It's like this meaningless, like bullshit bingo. There's so much corporate talk, and it's like, yeah. and his whole thing is like, he's the guy who cuts through all that, but while speaking exactly as in you, that language, in that language, yeah, and it's frustrating. Yeah, I and it, I don't really understand what the, his motivation is supposed to be. He doesn't seem to care that much about leaving the EU. There's an early scene where um, uh, two of the campaigners uh, go to recruit him, Douglas Carswell and uh, Matthew Arnold, trying to get their leave uh, leave campaign off the off the ground. And at first, he's reluctant to do it because he hates Westminster and he hates MPs. And then he gets convinced when Carswell says to him, "No one's listened to you before, and now people will have to listen to you." And he's like, "All right, now I'm now I'm, I'm into it." suggesting that it's just like an ego trip for him and he just wants people to listen to him and just to do an exciting thing but he keeps talking in really grandiose terms about the world and you know seismic changes seismic changes it's all things are changing and no one gets it and you can't you see you can't carry on as you did before and but it's like but what do you want what do you actually want you know i don't yeah i think the movie doesn't seem to really get understand what sort of a person this actually is you know by holding him up at the same time as this sort of genius behind the scenes puppet master who, who created all this stuff while presenting to you presumably you know the, the version that um is not public facing and the more real version of him yeah but what is that who is that guy like he just he seems equally as enigmatic to be honest yeah, it's also just a very irritating, like, Remainer attitude where it's like everyone in the movie is an idiot apart from him. Yeah. Like, there's no way they, you know, the, the Remain shit, like. like, could have, you know, been outsmarted by these idiots. So they had just one genius, Doctor Strange, was working for them, and that's yeah. why we lost. Uh, and uh, if he hadn't been for that person, it would have been fine. But at the same time, it's like history marches on, and it would have been this result no matter what. Yeah. So. He's not a genius. He's just the guy who happened to be there. Yeah. So what's the, just, the, yeah? The, 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 they they do not like yeah. bring those two things together. The ambiguity is like, what was Jamie Graham thinking? That's the like. Yeah. Well, exactly. He doesn't really have a handle on it at all. Yeah. He, he it's clear that he doesn't he doesn't really um, have a grasp of what could have happened. And the other thing as well, the the way that it tries to have its cake and eat it is by criticizing the remainers on one hand for not understanding people you know there's like there's a scene where um cumberbatch and uh carswell and matthew elliott go out to like they, they find one of the left behinds you know in, in a sort of house where they've never been knocked on by a politician and you know they sort of sure it's a really weird scene they kind of like listen to their concerns and then um cumberbatch kind of gets overtaken by the background hum of britain and has to go and lie down on on the on the road yeah didn't really know what's going on there but it, obviously it presents this idea that like the leavers were speaking to people who like the elites were like the sort of establishment remainer elites had ignored and were, and were not addressing their concerns and, and that kind of thing. But the film's own attitude towards regular people who are outside this universe of guys in offices in politics and Westminster and stuff is incredibly elitist. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all they're all a bunch of fucking rubes. In, yeah. There's like a series of scenes in focus groups where the, it's like the movie you know, a focus group is where like political parties attempt to find people who are representative of the population which is not actually possible to do you kind of like six people in a room who perfectly represent the entire population yeah, yeah. and if you can get them all to agree then you can win 100 percent of the vote or something like that but in the in jamie graham's mind they actually are perfect representations of these different segments of society like 
uh, you know, the, the Europhile and the uh, what, what they call the ardent internationalist and then like the old racist man and, yeah. you know, and then just like the sort of middle England woman who's really upset like the just views the public in general as as just these like pawns for the generals you know like the, this the attitude which they're criticized for in the thing is clearly his own attitude yeah P- there are no real people in this world they're just like fodder for the campaigns you know like that's why people are fucking pissed off they don't want to be treated <laughs> the way you've treated your characters in this in your film ironic i Iro- ironic 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 if you ask me um but we did have a laugh watching it yeah it is quite funny. But why isn't Labour ahead in the polls, Sam? I don't understand. <laughs> the film didn't explain to me why it's not... Why are we 100% popularity? Oh. Well, well, there's one more thing I want to want to mention about Please somewhere do. around this. Like, the tone of it is quite weird. It's got this kind of, like, panto tone where there's, like, funny stamps that appear over people's faces every time they crop up to show whether they leave or remain. And Some slow motion, crazy angles introduce characters it's just, kind of like, just because... something sort of broad comedy about its approach. Like, you know, aren't they all a bit silly? Which it doesn't really like jibe very successfully with the a narrative of a uh, sort of apocalyptic that you know the world is being overturned by this like tide of uh, anti-establishment feeling or whatever, and the and the introduction of um, the death of Joe Cox quite late on is a kind of it's basically there to illustrate how bad Brexit was for like the, the sort of discourse, but it seems to confuse just sort of a bunch of people like no longer paying attention to economists and their and their hard facts with like fascist street violence in a way that i think is quite Actual problematic murder. yeah like like yeah, literal yeah. far-right murder which is like really not the same thing as like i don't know online bullying or just like you know i don't know protests i mean the, the movie is kind of shots of like angry protesters as a kind of sign of like the breakdown of um discourse or whatever like there's people aren't being rational or civil or kind anymore but that really is a totally different matter to like like people literally going out and merging an MP because of what is decades of anti-immigration um, xenophobia that's been sort of whipped up by this specific campaign. Like, I don't think you can really connect those two things. Like Farage's Nazi poster was saying breaking point on it is not the same sort of thing as lying to somebody about like NHS funding or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, or, just, or, or just, you know, ignoring the experts like... I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you can you can draw this into a narrative, but it just seems like a bit of a clumsy and unfortunate way to use the death of Joe Cox. You know, it obviously was trying to be very somber about it, but it still is a bit like yeah. In this kind of panto world, I don't see how the actual consequences of all this being laid out that boldly kind of works. You know, when the rest of it is just like fucking coming, sitting in his cupboard and like muttering about Sun Tzu and you know Tolstoy, and- Tolstoy or whatever. He's a fucking hilarious character. Five so, stars? Five stars. Five stars for Brexit, the uncivil war. How many... Oh, shit. I can make some EU flag joke, can I? It's like a star for every star that was you in... Know, I don't know how many stars are in the... I still, yeah, each one either. represents a country, but I think there's... Is there 28 stars? Because that's how many countries are in the EU? Yeah. Well, 27 stars. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's about to be one less. My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen but she wants to be in radio So she starts a podcast with her friends And the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end Next week We're going to be reviewing Burning Which is the sickest film of the year It's sick It's totally banging Lee Chang Dong's Burning It's so hot right now So hot Thank you And we're going to be joined by an extra special guest Georgia Mills from yeah. the Naked Scientist podcast, and also from our lives as our, as our friend. Yeah, I don't think I don't think she wants to be honest in her capacity as Naked Scientist. So maybe well, I've got I've say, got a lot of science questions to ask her. So. Well, we can in yeah in her capacity as a civilian, we can ask her about that. Okay, civilian Georgia Mills will be on. She, she knows a lot about science, though. She knows a lot about science. My ask her some science. Yeah, is it possible for someone to die of a broken heart like in Star Wars? <laughs> I want to know that. Yeah, we'll have to send her these questions beforehand yeah, she can yeah. prepare good answers. All right. Have a lovely week, everyone. Happy to be back. Hope you're looking forward to 2019's many episodes of this podcast. We are. Until then. Until then. Goodbye. Before you were famous, were you, did you date a lot? Were you, were you out there playing well, the field a lot? You know, my, my problem is that I was very, uh, I was very particular. Yeah. And... Which is odd because I was des- very desperate at the, at the time. Really? So it's an odd kind of combination to be desperate and then particular. Yes. You know? 
and um, you'll find that, you'll notice that a lot of desperate people are, are very particular, like even like, like Quasimodo. Okay? Quasimodo. Quasimodo, very particular. The, 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 now the hunchback, the hunchback, the hunchback yes. had to have the best looking girl in the village. <laughs> Quasimodo. <laughs> you know, and, and his friends would try and fix him up. They go, Quasi. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very nice girl in my office, a wonderful personality. I, I, I want to introduce you to her. Is she good looking? <laughs> She's good looking, Quasi. You're a monster. You're, you're, you're a hideous beast. You're the ugliest man in Paris. Is she good looking? What are you talking about? You have to be good looking. So, you know, I, I was particular. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.